Good morning. Uh, I praise God for you, Rich and Rachel. Uh, one of the great joys of Restoration Church um, is watching how the Lord will sometimes use all these people that move away from here all the time uh, to use them in particular for explicit aspects of ministry, uh, like the Ernst and the. Uh, it's also fun to see that when uh, uh, when people meet and get married, which is what happened to Rich and Rachel at our church. So. We serve that ministry as well here in the life of our church, uh, but uh, we're grateful for you. And, and let me just, uh, something that uh, Rich said that I think is really important. My in email inbox, some people say this is a bad idea, but uh, I use it as my kind of to-do list. And so if I get an email from somebody, I sign up for newsletters all the time, and I just make that part of my prayer life. And so if you're wondering, how do I, you know, sometimes you get newsletters or people, missionaries come in and talk to you about uh, getting on their prayer team. Sign up for these newsletters from Rich. You can get it right over here. And then when they send you emails, just use that to pray. When you're using in your prayer time, just sort of bring it up or print it off or whatever. Uh, but, uh, brother, we pray for you. I pray for you all the time and uh, look forward to how the Lord will use you. Uh, and thank you for playing for us today. Same with Rachel, uh, playing the piano today. When he played beautifully. So let me pray for us in advance of the preaching of God's word. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Lord, as we come to the close of not only another year, but a decade. Uh, we think about, God, the many things that have happened to us, good and bad, over the past 10 years. And, Lord, we are mindful that as we close out one year, Lord, we look to you in a new year for hope, for peace, for life, for justice, for grace. And so, God, we look to you now in this moment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I can remember the pastor of my uh, kind of mid-life you know, life. I don't know what to call that, you know, 20, 21, 22. His name is Bobby Linkus. He preached right here uh, in our covenanting service uh, here 10 years ago. And I remember him saying something years ago about this time, Christmas time. And he said that many people think that Christmas sermons are the easiest sermons for pastors to preach. And I remember him saying they're actually the most difficult. And the reason for that is because the sermon or the message in the text is so familiar to people that they don't really listen. And so because of that, there's this temptation to try to see something unique or funny or entertaining to keep your attention or to get your attention. And uh, so they do all kinds of other things um, to try to do that. But um, there's something funny about familiar stories like the birth of Christ that make it difficult to hear. There's something about familiarity that makes it hard to hear. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way, but like... Uh, familiar stories, or especially ones like the birth of Christ, they're sort of like lullabies. They're sweet, but they're sweet enough to put you to sleep, right? And so what we have to recognize is the events that we will discuss this morning, they are indisputably part of some of the most important events in all of world history. And so while these events may be difficult to hear because they are so familiar, might I encourage us all this morning to listen again for the first time? To the truth of these realities. God breaking into the world. God literally writing himself into the story of humanity. And doing it amongst an otherwise ordinary people. Ordinary couple. I like to say Joseph and Mary were from a city sort of like Possum Trot, Kentucky. Which does exist, by the way. I've been there. There's some small town. right? He's a carpenter just making wooden things. Simple people. Uh, Joseph is engaged to be married to a simple teenage girl. This couple would have been probably like a lot of other couples, maybe that you drove by this morning and didn't even pay attention to. 
regular people. God is using them. And so this morning, we're going to focus on the narrative of Joseph in particular uh, there in Matthew chapter one. Uh, Our churches started back in Luke back here in September, and we looked at Mary. We thought about Mary, uh, but we didn't pay much attention to Joseph because uh, in Luke, he doesn't do that. But here in Matthew, we do find him paying attention to the part of Joseph's narrative in the birth of Christ. And so I've entitled the sermon this morning, Joseph and Joseph's God, because that's what we see here in Matthew chapter one. We're going to be looking especially at verses 18 to 25. But notice right there at the beginning, Matthew one, one. Remember, Matthew's one of those disciples. We talked about him last week, one of those 12 disciples. And here's what he says in the very first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then notice the list of names that comes after that. You've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've got the son of the covenant, Judah, there. You've got the story of uh, uh, Tamar. You've got uh, Boaz and Rahab and Ruth. Verse 6, you have David the king. You have his son Solomon, which comes next. Slide down to verse uh, 10. You've got that story. We're reminded of the stories of Hezekiah and his son Josiah. Uh, All the way down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So God's history and his promises, as we see it traced through all these people, are all coming true. God was faithful to his promises. And now let's read how this happened, how it came about. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was to be found She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Two points this morning. We're going to look at Joseph, the just man and Jesus, the savior, but Joseph, the just, let's take a, let's consider that for a moment. Now, first off, notice the lineage that we just briefly considered that is documented there, the lineage, the genealogy of this simple Galilean man. So the text is here is going out of its way to show you his lineage. He has the tie to Abraham and David, which is critical because God made promises to those two men, Abraham and David. The Savior would come from their line. You'll also notice the words of the angel in verse 20, that Joseph is the son of David. And that is not only to highlight his credentials as the legal father of Jesus, but it's also to make the connection to the fact that David was a king and Joseph's adopted son, Jesus, is the king of kings. And so if you've ever wondered why the Bible is going out of its way or seems to be so infatuated with genealogies, that's why. They're tracking, the authors are tracking God's promises like gate agents checks your ID to make sure you can get into the terminal. And clearly Joseph passes 
And that in and of itself is worthy of our worship, that God not only kept his promises, he did so through this simple Galilean man and this simple Galilean woman. But also, as we move into the story there in verse 18, I want you to notice, this is what I want to meditate on for a bit, the predicament that Joseph found himself in. On the one hand, we see in verse 18, we see that Joseph was betrothed to uh, to his gal Mary there. And to be betrothed is to be legally pledged to Mary. The only way out of a betrothal at this time in this culture is by divorce. And so this explains why the angel says to Joseph to not fear in taking Mary as his wife in verse 20. Yet at the same time, Joseph is referred to as Mary's husband in verse 19. So they're in this sort of strange thing to where they're legally pledged, but they're not quite married. And so Mary, we see, is found to be with Christ, the child, the Christ child, though he has not Yet she has not been with Joseph. So we think she was about four months pregnant or so because she's gone to be with Elizabeth. She's there, we think, for roughly about three months. Maybe when she came back into the city and she told Joseph then, who knows. But this child, we know, while she has been, this child is conceived within her, the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But at the point of verse 19, Joseph doesn't know that yet. All he knows is that his fiance slash wife is pregnant. And Joseph knows how that works. Right? And it wasn't him. So there are two things we see in response to this that are crystal clear that we learn about Joseph. The first is, is that it's clear that Joseph deeply loves this woman. He deeply loves and cares for Mary. I take that from verse 19, which is an amazing assessment of the character of Joseph. It says that he was unwilling to put her to shame, resolving to divorce her quietly. Now, Mosaic law saw adultery as punishable by death. Uh, But even if that wasn't enacted, Joseph could have gone to the public officials and made it public and Mary made Mary's pregnancy public and shame her. He could have done that, then divorce her, keeping himself clean, as it were, in, in the eyes of the people. But he doesn't because it says he was unwilling to have her be shamed. He cared for Mary so much that he was going to do what was necessary and put her away as his betrothed. It wasn't though he wasn't required to divorce her. He was going to do what was possible, I should say, in accordance with the law. But he refused to do it in such a way as to shame Mary. And so if I was Joseph, imagine if you were in his position. If I was Joseph and I found out that my fiance slash wife was pregnant, I'd be really upset. I'd be incredibly hot and my temptation in my flesh would be to do something to shame her, to try to get some justice out of the situation. But that's not what Joseph does. My guess is he's probably full of hurt, full of pain, full of confusion. And so something had to be done, which leads us to the other aspect of Joseph's predicament. That is the requirement of the law, the requirement of the word. So on the one hand, he's dealing with all the just the emotions of the fact that his fiance slash wife is pregnant. On the other hand, he's having to deal with the requirement of the word. Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 says uh, it teaches that if a man finds indecency in a wife, he can write a certificate of divorce and put her away. Now, Jesus says of that passage that uh, that was only there because of the hardness of their heart. But nevertheless, there it is. We also read in Leviticus 20 that adultery was punishable by death. So that's what Joseph, as far as he knows, that's what Mary has done. 
So what would you do in that situation? He knows the teaching of the word and he's trying to live in light of it. Um, and so he could report her and publicly shame her on the one hand, or he could just not care what the Bible teaches and refrain from doing anything. But it's evident that Joseph's conscience was bound by the good word of God. Therefore, before taking Mary as his wife, uh, he would separate himself from her and any possible unrighteousness that may be associated to him. And yet at the same time, he was going to do that in a way that would still try to protect and dignify Mary. And that shows us that not only did Joseph love and care for Mary, he loved and cared for God in his word. So there was no, uh, Joseph was no kind of carnal or convenient Christian that was a believer in name only. This man uh, truly believed the Lord. He followed the Lord. And here is that predicament being caught in the middle of these two things. And let's not forget that all of this is happening with a, again, simple Galilean man from Nazareth. This is not a guy, this is not a guy that has a lot of connections with a lot of money and a lot of power. He's a simple man. After studying this passage more closely this week, I've come into great uh, admiration of Joseph, how he's trying to work through all this. He wasn't like the Pharisees, so bound by the word of God that he forgot the heart of it, nor was he so bound to Mary that he just neglected the word of God. He considered his situation and knowing he didn't want to hurt any Mary any more than she was already going to be hurt by the public. He was going to divorce her, but he was going to do it quietly. So when he's doing this again in advance of a relationship, he thought was gone. It was over because his trust for her had been apparently eroded. And all of this goes on to explain why the text tells us that Joseph was a just man. In other words, he's acting. He's trying to take all of these pressures and trying to live obediently and faithfully in the midst of them all. And so as if all of this wasn't enough, guys, there's even more to what Joseph had to endure. As Joseph is considering all of these things, we see an angel of the Lord visits Joseph in a dream in advance of his possibly divorcing her. And notice the words there from the angel. Do not fear. Verse 20. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. In other words, the angel is releasing Joseph of any fear he would have to continue on into the marriage. In other words, this woman, the angel is saying, she's a trustworthy woman. Don't divorce her. You don't have to fear. And the reason why is because Mary's child was conceived not by another man, but by the Holy Spirit. The angel saying Mary has not done anything wrong. In fact, she actually has found great favor and much to Joseph's surprise. So has he found favor to be part of this. I'm sure he wasn't feeling really favored in those moments, right? So the angel tells Joseph that the child was not only conceived by the Holy Spirit, but its conception revealed the baby's essence. This is a holy child. This is Emmanuel, God with us. We're going to think about that more in a minute, but we find Joseph is also the one that has to name this child. I don't know if you ever knew that. I don't know if I knew that before studying this week. He's the one that's assigned to name the child Jesus. Jesus means Savior. And the angel wants Joseph to name him Jesus because this child will save his people from their sins. And all of this fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. That's the quotation of the verse there. Who said some 700 years before this incident. That the Christ would be born of a virgin. And all of this was told to Joseph in a dream. And so just imagine what it must have been like to wake up from that dream. Right? So part of you is probably thinking, was that fantasy? Or you ever had dreams so real they felt real? Well, this one was real. It was true. Imagine waking up 
and responding to what the angel has told you. I'm sure the first response, had you woken up and that angel told you that, the first response would have been great relief, right? Because that woman that you loved and cared for is not what you thought she was. But not only that, we find out he wakes up and now that gives him a little bit of comfort. But then secondly, I'm sure he begins to wrestle with the fact that she's carrying the Christ child. He's, then he kind of processes that. And then after that, he realizes and has to process through the fact that this not, is, not only is the Christ child, but this Christ child is God in the flesh. And then not only that, this child that is coming, that is Christ, that is the Christ child, that is God in the flesh, he is going to come to save you from your sins. That's exciting to you as Joseph, if that was you. And not only that, as if all of that wasn't enough, you have to be the one to name him. I mean, my goodness, you've grown up, think about it, in synagogues your entire life, if you were Joseph, listening to these stories of the coming Messiah, and here it is all happening, and it's happening to you. Can you imagine the weight of all of this that was happening and coming at Joseph? I doubt Joseph slept a week. Perhaps the first thing he did when he woke up is ran over to the bedside of Mary and told her what had happened, what he'd been told. And I'm sure, by the way, that Mary was comforted when she heard this because I'm sure that she's likely thinking that she's about to lose Joseph. So she's comforted. But the text tells us that Joseph woke from the sleep, woke from sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his Mary as his wife. He knew her not until after she had given birth to Jesus. He names the child Jesus as he was told. In other words, what the text is telling us, in other words, what he's telling us is that we learn that Joseph was a godly, faithful, and obedient man. He was a just man. He was a faithful man. He loved his bride and he loved his God. And when life came at him fast, he did not want to compromise on either of those things. May we all aspire to be men like Joseph, especially the men in the room, learning how to, in the midst of compromise and difficulty, confusion, learning how to love others and love God at the same time when it's hard to understand. Mankind is best measured not by how uh, they are when things are going good. Mankind is best measured by how they are when things are hard, when things are difficult. When things are confusing, that's when you get the true measure of a man. You find out what you're made of when life squeezes you. And what came out of Joseph when he was squeezed by life was good things. Again, it's led me to be even more in awe of this amazing couple, Joseph and Mary. Mary, again, that teenage girl who, when confronted with the difficult task of carrying Jesus, responded with trust. Let it be to me according to your word. Everybody else before her, by the way, we always forget this. They always doubted, questioned, ran away. Simple teenage gal, I'm in. Amazing. And the man that she married, when he was met with all kinds of confusing messages, was given the word of God, and he responded by doing all that was commanded him. Even when it was unclear, he labored to live in the truth. Joseph deserved his description of being a just man. Being just means righteous. Uh, no matter, no matter what it may cost him, he was striving to live in whatever was right and true. And so my question for us this morning is, is what about you? What about you? What happens when you are squeezed by life? What comes out of you? What happens when things uh, in life comes at you in such a pace as to bring you disturbing messages and conflicting messages? How do you respond? If we could put your name in a little description 
Joseph was the just. Insert your name. What would be the description for you when that difficulty of life comes upon you? What would be the testimony of God's word say to you when life and conflicting difficulties come upon you? Now, the reality is, thanks be to God, none of us have the ministry of Joseph, right? None of us have the ministry of Mary. None of us have to be the adoptive father or mother of Emmanuel, God with us. Thanks be to God, right? We don't have that ministry. You won't have to name Jesus. You won't have to raise Jesus in your home. But the reality is, if you take the name of Christ, your life will be fraught with perplexing challenges. Most of you have already experienced this. You love something or someone and life will come at you in such a way as to ask you the question that Joseph had to answer. Will you be just or not? Will you be righteous in this thing or not? Will you, as it says there in verse 24, will you do as it was commanded or not? Will you be unwilling, like Joseph was, to shame the one he loved while also striving to live in obedience to Christ? See, none of us will have the luxury of an angel coming and telling us exactly what to do. But here's the reality. We do have the sufficiency of God's word that's given us all that we need to know to make those decisions. All that we need to know. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete Equipped for every good work. I'm sure that some of us would like to know if we should take this job or that job. The Bible doesn't answer that. But it does give us enough information to know what the right choice is as it relates to righteousness. We who are in Christ have two things that Joseph did not have. We have one, the Holy Spirit living within us. And secondly, we have the complete sufficient word of God in a single volume at our bedside. To be studied. To be considered, to, to, to not, that, that doesn't even mention all the resources that we have to try to make sense of this that he wouldn't have had. All of it is there in front of us at our disposal to help us in times of difficulty when we have conflicting choices and decisions to make. And I realize again that we'd rather have the angel just tell us what to do. But even then, I wonder, even then, if the angel told you exactly what to do in that hard situation, would you do it? If you knew that it was going to cause you pain or difficulty or distance from someone you cared about. So at the end of the day, if our confession is Jesus is Lord, and yet we only implore the wisdom of the Lord when it's convenient, then we don't really believe that Jesus is Lord. But if we do employ the wisdom of the Lord at all times, but especially when it's inconvenient, especially when it's hard, then listen, you can be sure that you truly believe that Jesus is Lord. With an ever-increasing pressure upon us in society as on Christians, we have been afforded this wonderful opportunity to see if we are really like Joseph the just or Judas the traitor. Will we follow Jesus and make the hard decisions to obey his revealed will? Or will we follow him only insofar as it will benefit us, as it will be convenient for us? And in those times, will we just sell him out as Judas did? And lest you leave here thinking that that impetus to obey is upon you, let me relieve you for a moment. Our strength to live out righteousness, to live justly, as Joseph did, is not on us, but on Christ in us. 
That's where our hope is. That's where our strength is found. I do not trust. Nathan Knight does not trust himself. Nathan Knight trusts Christ in Nathan to live it out. And so our confidence is in Christ in us. And the means, the means of living justly and leaning upon Jesus for those decisions. The means is our having our confidence in Christ is by leaning upon the spirit through the word as we are helped by God's people. God's spirit, God's word, God's people. These three things are the way in which we lean upon the strength of Christ to make hard decisions. God's word, God's spirit, God's people coming together. That's how we enact, how we enact and consult. How is it we live righteously or justly as Joseph did? God gives us his spirit. He gives us the sufficiency of his word and he gives us his church to guide us into the way and the truth and the life when things get hard or confusing. And so our confidence, again, for obedience is not in ourselves, but in Christ and the one that believes. And we reveal that confidence when the face of difficult decisions, we carefully consult God's word with dependence upon God's spirit while seeking God's people to speak truth into us, inviting them. And then we listen to it. That's an important part of the equation, right? And Joseph uh, is evidently this kind of a guy. And as we do this, as we consult these things, we know that we can face difficult trials and tribulations that have us to answer questions difficultly as Christians. We can have confidence that we will come out on the side of justice as Joseph did. But if you don't, listen, if you don't, if you trust yourself, your own judgments, leaning lightly upon God's spirit, God's word and God's people, well, then you will not have the confidence to make a just decision. Because after all, as good and as faithful as man as Joseph was, he was not the Savior. He was a sinful man in need of a Savior. Right? That's why Jesus came. Because if Joseph was perfectly just and complete and not a sinner, he would just be the guy. But he was the adoptive father to the guy, Jesus. So let's go ahead and consider him. We've considered Joseph the just. Let's now consider Jesus the Savior who is God in the flesh. We've already gotten a lot of information about Jesus from the first line of this book. What's the book of Matthew about? Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We've already considered the name Joseph was told to give his adopted son, Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua from the Old Testament, same name, which means Savior. And Jesus is given this name because it describes his mission. He's given that name because it describes his mission. It wasn't just a family name in Joseph's line. He was given that name because it describes his mission. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for or because he will save his people from their sins. We've been thinking about this, right? Luke 5, 32, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, Jesus didn't just come to teach, folks. He came to be a savior, to save people from their sins. That's the heart of his mission. But also note the other name that is given him. He's given the name Jesus, but also know the name Christ. See, it's easy to forget. Kids, pay attention here just for a second. You might be tempted to think that Christ is Jesus' last name. Nathan Knight, Jesus Christ, not the case. All right? Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. And here's what it means. It means Messiah or anointed one, anointed one. You can see the reference to Jesus as the Christ. So it's easy to think of Jesus as the Christ instead of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Christ. You can see the reference to Jesus as the Christ four times in chapter one alone. Verse one, 16, 17 and 18. 
And because Jesus is assigned this title, uh, what it's saying is exactly what the angel said of Jesus there in verse 22. He, Jesus, is the fulfillment of what the Lord had spoken of. Not only from Isaiah, which is the reference there, but by all the prophets. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the one that was prophesied of long ago. He is the one that Israel and all of the nations that hoped in this Messiah were waiting upon to come and save them from their sins. This is the one that Simeon, for instance, waited upon in the temple day after day. And when he saw the baby Jesus, the Christ, in Mary's arms, he took the baby and said this to him in Luke 2, 29. Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have, I love this, seen your salvation. Jesus is salvation, in other words. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, and for glory to your people Israel. So Christ, he was the Christ, the Messiah, the, the faithful one, the promised one. And not only is Jesus Savior, and not only is He Christ, the Savior, as if all of that wasn't enough, take a look at verse 23. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, guys, I have tried to think about this text this week. How do you explain that? Imagine being me in this moment. How do you explain God with us in a baby? Right? Very, very difficult to do. Well, it's possible in part because of the Trinity. This God, the one that we're worshiping, the one that we understand to be coming into the world, is also God, the one true and living God, the God that spoke and ushered the world into existence, the God that sustains the world. He is now with us in Jesus. How is that possible? Great question. 2,000 years of church theologians have been trying to answer that question. But again, in part, it's possible because God is triune by nature. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who have all existed from eternity. One essence in three distinct eternal realities, which are Father, Son, and Spirit. And did you notice, all three of them are active right here. The Father has sent the Son, and the Spirit conceives the Son in the womb of Mary. All three are here making possible our salvation. So without the Trinity, in other words, you lose the gospel. None of these events happen. So it's a critical link of Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, that makes our salvation possible. What an incredibly indescribable reality, this Christ child. That the one that Mary made, that one, the one that made Mary, Jesus, is now dependent upon Mary. What an incredible reality that The God that made the world himself now enters into the world to save it. 1 John 4.10 says that in this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means wrath quencher. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but God shows that he is love by the anger he has against our sin. You ever thought of that before? So we can easily imagine Joseph may have been angry with Mary, right? I mean, imagine Joseph doesn't know this is a Christ child. He just thinks she's pregnant. We would understand that Joseph would be angry. Why? Because he loved Mary. That's why. His anger, Joseph's anger, would have revealed his love. 
And had that been the case, which it wasn't, but had that been the case that she had done something she shouldn't have done, we would have all agreed that Joseph was not only right to be angry, we would have agreed with his description that he was right to, in some ways, enact justice. Because he was angry, because she had sinned against him, uh, and he was angry because of that love. And so it is with God and us in our sin. God is love. And in our sin, in our disobeying him, in our not loving him, as he asks of us, we have committed spiritual adultery against him. And so God is rightfully angry against us in our sin. He's rightfully understood to divorce us or separate us, as Joseph is looking to do. And the manifestation of Christ, God in the flesh coming to save us, reveals we can't save ourselves. From that anger. The whole Old Testament. The whole point of the Old Testament is to say. With all of the spiritual blessings you might have. It's still not enough to earn your way back into his love. So the amazing reality is. That we see in this child coming into the world. Is that God was going to do it himself. Even though he was angry. Rightfully. At us. In our sin. God took the initiative to send his son. To bring healing to those that love him. Repent and believe on him. Amazing reality that testifies to the fact that God is love. Jesus would grow. This child, the reason, by the way, he needed to be a baby and just didn't come in as an adult, as he could have done, as Adam was, he was an adult, was because Jesus needed to live a righteous life, a holy life. Never disobey anything in the law, as Joseph would have done, as Mary, in fact, did at some level, because Mary prays for a Savior. And so Jesus lives the sinless life. This Savior would rise to then go and pay the penalty for sinners that believe on the cross, paying that penalty, satisfying that wrath. And then three days later, bringing about the resurrection, showing that Jesus did, in fact, triumph over sin and death, which is the whole point of why he came, as the angel said. And this whole gospel, guys, makes clear, as we think about Joseph the just, that God can be both the just and the justifier of the one that believes. He can be just to sinners and that he offers his son to pay the penalty for their, for their sins. And he can be the justifier then because of those that trust in Jesus, their righteousness becomes him, his righteousness. Or as it says in 2 Corinthians five twenty one, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so you can see why the angels sang and why Christians for the last 2000 years have rejoiced not only at Christmas, But all year long, the Savior, Messiah, was and is God, and he came to dwell with us. Though he was rightly angry at us, God came near to us in Jesus in order to reconcile us to himself, because we could not do it on our own. This, friends, is the love of God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, God does not help those who help themselves. That's nowhere in the Bible. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who know they can't help themselves. That's why God sent his son. To rescue us from ourselves. That's the gospel. That's why he came to be with us. And so I don't know where all of you are this morning, uh, this Christmas season. I don't know where each of you are at. But for those of you that have not yet placed your faith in Christ, truly confessed him as Lord, The best gift you can give God this Christmas is your life. Romans 12 says to offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. In other words, give him all of you since God gave you all of his son. 
Repent, believe, trust him for new life to live as Joseph did as just. And for those of you that have trusted Christ, listen, rejoice with the angels and all of the redeemed. Not only did God come to be with us, listen, as Joey said earlier, he will come again. He will come again. And when he comes, when Jesus returns, he will take us home. And there in the new Jerusalem, we will finally see Jesus face to face and we will be with him and he will be with us forever. Materially. Resurrected bodies, worshiping a resurrected Savior on a resurrected earth. That's what we look forward to now in this part of the story. And so towards that end, I call us to do as the saints of old once did when they look forward to Christ's first appearing. I call us this Christmas season to train our hearts to look forward to Christ's second coming. When the final chapter will finally be written and all will be done. And as you do that, ask the Lord Jesus for strength to be as Joseph the just. Ask him for strength to walk that out as you patiently wait upon him to return. Leaning upon his word, leaning upon his spirit, leaning upon the church to help you walk these difficult and perplexing days. So as to then be found in him righteous the day in which he returns. May we be that kind of a people. When you open up those presents on Christmas morning, if you have presents to open up. Remember the greatest gift of all, Jesus, and then train your heart to wait upon him and ask him for strength to walk justly until he comes, leaning upon all the resources he's given us. What a good believing, a good trustworthy story that God has given us in his son. May we wait upon him in faith. May we act justly, preaching Christ boldly until he returns. Let's pray and ask him for help. So, Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his adopted father, Joseph, that is so instructive to us as to how to live justly in the midst of perplexing challenges. We thank you again, most of all, for Jesus, the Savior. He was the true just man that came to save us from our sins. Oh, God, teach us to not only say that he's the Lord, but to offer our whole selves to him since you offered all of yourself to us in Jesus. Thank you that Christ has come to dwell amidst us by the presence of your spirit. God, thank you that you can be said to be with us even now. But Lord, we wait for the day when all things will be made right. We pray that Jesus would return soon so that God with us will be true in every sense of the word. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen.